From WBEZ Chicago, it's This American Life, distributed by Public Radio International. And today we have a big, big story of money and politics that begins with a humble voicemail. This is uh, Eleanor Norton, Congresswoman Eleanor Holmes Norton. Uh, I noticed that you have given to uh, other colleagues on the Transportation and Infrastructure Committee. I am a um, senior member, a 20-year veteran. This is voicemail that Eleanor Holmes Norton, the Democratic congressman from Washington, D.C., left for a lobbyist in the fall of 2010. We don't know who the lobbyist is, but from the voicemail we can infer that he represents a contractor who's working on the new Homeland Security Complex being built in Washington, D.C., a complex that Eleanor Holmes Norton at the time had a lot of power over. And I'm handling the largest economic development project in the United States now, the Homeland Security Compound of three buildings being built on the uh, old St. Elizabeth's Hospital site. After pointing out that she is in charge of the project that he cares about, she gets to the point. I was, frankly, uh, uh, surprised to see that we don't have a record, so far as I can tell, of your having given to me, despite my uh, long and deep uh, work, essentially in your sector. I'm, I'm simply candidly calling to ask for a contribution. I'm asking you to give the citizens of Eleanor Holmes Norton, P.O. Box 70626, DC2024. This tape first surfaced on the Andrew Breitbart site, Big Government. The source uh, was the lobbyist and redacted his own name from the beginning of the tape. Eleanor Holmes Norton verified that it was real. She declined to talk to us for this program. This voicemail of a U.S. congresswoman sending a lot like a telemarketer is a peek behind a curtain that usually we don't get a chance to peek behind. It's a part of our political process that we all know exists, the money-gathering part, but we usually don't get a chance to witness. Politicians usually don't like reporters and film crews present when they ask for cash. Most of them never want to talk about it with a reporter. But it is daily life for pretty much every member of Congress, their staffs, lobbyists. Phone calls like this are happening all day, Every day, there are phone banks, literally phone banks, in offices in Washington, D.C., where congresspeople are making calls like this one, leaving messages just like this one. And don't just take it from me. Here's the second in command of the U.S. Senate, Dick Durbin, Democrat from Illinois. I think most Americans would be shocked, not surprised, but shocked, if they knew how much time a United States senator spends raising money. And how much time we spend talking about raising money and thinking about raising money and planning to raise money and, you know, going off on little retreats and and conjuring up new ideas on how to raise money. Well, today on our program, we will, we will shock you. Alex Bloomberg from our Planet Money team has joined forces with NPR's congressional correspondent Andrea Seabrook to take us deep inside this world that is hidden in plain sight, the world of lobbyists and money and political fundraising a world that we all hear about all the time, but most of us never have seen up close. They talk to the people who need the money, they talk to the people who give the money, and they try to figure out what exactly the money buys. Also, there's this little Supreme Court case you may have heard about, Citizens United, we'll talk about that as well. And we bring the old band back together, McCain and Feingold, here on the radio, original cast, no substitutions, stay with us. Act one, the hamster wheel. 
Alex and Andrea start off our hour at the spots where the money actually changes hands. The money changes hands in very specific places all over D.C. There are townhouses whose sole function is to be rented out as venues for this. Dozens of restaurants do a booming business, catering small parties in private rooms. And if you have an idea in your head of what a political fundraiser is, I know I did, get it out. It is not that super fancy black tie gala event you hear about, like the one Barack Obama went to with a $30,000 plate dinner and Alicia Keys performing. It is not that at all. These are much more mundane. Like this one here. Here's an invitation to one for Representative Tim Bishop. He's a Democrat from New York. It's at a restaurant called Johnny's Half Shell. It costs you between $500 and $2,500 to get in. The time, 8.30 in the morning. Breakfast. See? Not glamorous. A lot of these fundraisers happen at breakfast. Or at lunch. Like this one. For Republican candidate Steve Daines of Montana. It's at the offices of a big trade group in town. Maybe 15, 20 people munching appetizers in a conference room. A congressional watchdog group called the Sunlight Foundation collects these invitations to fundraisers and puts them online. Sifting through them, the same venues come up again and again. Lunch at the Capitol Grill, dinner at Bullfeathers, cocktails at the Monocle, breakfast at Johnny's Half Shell. Now, occasionally they do get fancy. You'll see fundraisers at golf clubs or hockey games, pheasant hunts, yes, pheasant hunts, or live events. For example, this past week, for 1000 bucks, you could join South Dakota Senator John Thune at a Van Halen concert. Now, all of these events just happened, just in the last week, actually. Our analysis with the Sunlight Foundation data shows that in peak fundraising months, there are at least 20 events a day. One lawmaker told us you could spend every day of the year raising money. And in fact, some actually do. I'm very proud of the fact that this year we've broken all records for our low donor uh, contributions to our, our fundraising efforts, and that enabled us uh, to uh, outraise the Republicans this year. This is Nancy Pelosi, the top Democrat in the House. She's also the Democratic Party's number one fundraiser. Pelosi has raised hundreds of millions of dollars over the years, close to $40 million in this election alone. How many fundraisers do you typically go to in, say, a given week? A lot, yeah. I mean, they're on the phone or attending events, and uh, but I think they've said this year I attended what four hundred, almost four hundred fundraisers in uh, nearly forty cities. That's four hundred for the year twenty eleven. That's more than one a day every day of the year, Saturdays and Sundays included. Now we know from fundraising numbers and scheduled events that the leadership on the Republican side is working just as hard. We contacted all of them, and no one would speak to us. Staff for the number two Republican in the House, Eric Cantor, said, quote, will pass. House Speaker Boehner's staff said, quote, it doesn't sound like a good use of time. And there's one thing driving all this activity, a gnawing, relentless, voracious need for cash. To understand that need, consider Walt Minnick. Minnick is a conservative Democrat who represented a Republican-leaning district in Idaho. He was first elected in 2008, and after he won, he took just five days off from fundraising. Then, two months before he was sworn in as a congressman, he was back raising money for the next election, two years away. I needed to raise ten to $15,000 a day, and you only do it by elbow grease. Let's stop and dwell on that statement for a second, shall we, Andrea? Ten to $15,000 a day. The typical cost of a congressional race is about a million dollars, although if you're challenging an incumbent, you need more. Minnick's goal was even more than that, $2.5 million. 
because he was in such a competitive district. Uh, I would spend two or three hours a day as a congressman uh, trying to raise money. That's typical for a member of Congress, and most of those hours are spent across the street from the Capitol in special offices set up by the parties specifically for this purpose. Special offices because federal law prohibits lawmakers from making fundraising calls from their own congressional offices. Neither party is eager to let reporters into these call centers, but we got a couple Democrats to describe what it's like in there. This is Oregon Congressman Peter DeFazio. If you walked in there, you would say, boy, this is about the worst looking, most abusive call center situation I've seen in my life. These people don't have any workspace. The other person is, you know, virtually touching them, just like uh, counters on the wall with telephones and people eight inches away from you talking on the telephone. We sit at these desks with stacks of names in front of us and short bios and histories of giving. This is Senator Dick Durbin, who says that on the Senate side, they'll have these things called power hours several times a week, where a bunch of senators will go into the call center and make these calls to people who are our faithful friends and ask them to give money or have a fundraiser. And then, if we're fortunate enough, we end up attending those fundraisers that we beg people to do for us. I mean, that is part of the conversation. And this goes on and on and on. Where do the where do the names come from? How do you decide who to call? <laughs> the names come from a history of giving. And many of them, it's hard for most listeners to believe, really aren't looking for much. They want their team to win, in this case the Democratic team. Uh, they don't ask for special favors, but there are exceptions. There are some who won't waste any time to tell you what they think is the most important issue in Washington as they talk about their donation. I mean, it is part of the reality of the life that I live. It's absolutely the most distasteful thing to do as a, uh, as a congressman, a senator, or a candidate. Again, Walt Minnick. You essentially wear out your friends, and you wear out people who are your natural supporters, because if someone writes you one check or comes to a fundraiser, they get on a list, and uh, three or four months later, you call them back again. And um, the best thing about being an ex-congressman is my friends now return my phone calls. <laughs> <laughs> your friends started dodging your calls? Uh, they, um, I mean, they do what they can to help. They're your friends. But uh, after you've called them three or four times in an election cycle and they've been very generous, you know, they think enough's enough. And it is. I mean, I agree with them. <laughs> and I hated to make those calls. Now, there is an easier way to relieve some of that pressure and raise money faster, a way that doesn't involve tapping out your friends. Just go to the people who already have big stacks of money set aside to give to politicians. Lobbyists. A lobbyist can throw you a fundraiser, a lunch at Johnny's Half Shell, or a cocktail reception at Bullfeathers. And so every week, lawmakers and their staffs work the phones, trying to find lobbyists to organize these events. Jimmy Williams used to get those calls. He was a lobbyist for the real estate industry for many years. A lot of them would call and say, hey, you know, can you host an event for me? And you never want to say no. Actually, no, you always want to say no. In fact, you always want to say no, <laughs> but you can look on your phone with these caller IDs and you would be like, really? I'm not taking that call. Oh, so you would dodge calls for phone Oh, ID. yeah. Every lobbyist does it. Are you uh-huh. kidding? You spend most of your time dodging phone calls. Oh, yeah. This was one of the most surprising things I learned about this whole process. The way most of us generally think about it is absolutely backwards. 
We imagine the lobbyists stalking the halls of Congress, trying to influence members with cash. But more often than not, it's the reverse. The member is stalking the lobbyist, saying, hey, can I have some of that money? And it's hard to say no, Jimmy says, especially to a congressman whose work and votes he cared about. So he'd say yes, and then he'd have to round up a bunch of guests. So I call up my buddies down on K Street from uh, my buddy over at the, the credit unions or my buddy over at uh, the insurance company or my, my buddy over wherever, um, at the home builders. And I say, hey, dude, I'm going to do this event for this guy, and he sits on the House Financial Services Committee, and do you guys have any money for this person? Is he in your budget? And the answer was usually, yeah, yeah, I got money for that guy. And so, all right, so cool. So we'll come up with a date, and then we have this fundraiser. And it's a breakfast, or it's a lunch, or it's a dinner, or a cocktail reception. And everyone comes, and they bring their checks, or they mail their checks in, and then then you have it. We're talking thousands of dollars that the congressman will make in just an hour. And imagine what this is like for the lawmaker, for someone like Walt Minnick, who has to pull in ten to 15000 a day. When his staff comes and says, we've convinced this group of lobbyists to throw a fundraiser for you, it's a relief. And my answer is, yes, I'll be happy to attend. Um, I did lots of those kinds of events, too. I was on the Ag Committee and uh, every Ag group that uh, in Washington that wanted to host one of those kinds of events, I would be pleased to go to. And uh, if you walked away with four, four or five thousand from that, that was, uh, you know, that was uh, a half or a third of what you were supposed to raise that day, and that was easy money. <laughs> there was a lot few, fewer phone calls you had to make that afternoon. So, <laughs> we were curious: how exactly does the money change hands? Is it like handing the groom an envelope at a wedding reception? Does someone collect it at the door when you walk in? Are you supposed to be discreet or overt? The answer is all of the above. Some people pay with plastic. A lot of times there's actually a space on the invitation to put your credit card number. Sometimes you'll tell a staffer, just put me down for this much, and then you send the money in later. But some, like financial services industry lobbyist Scott Talbot, prefer a more direct approach. We have a policy that all checks have to be Mm hand-delivered. So we have to go up and eyeball the candidate and talk to them and deliver the check. In rare instances, we can mail the check, but for the most part, we want to be there as part of the delivery system. So you bring it with you, you have it in your pocket. And I have left it in my coat pocket many times. (laughs) Uh, My wife has said, what is this for, you know, this envelope? (laughs) So that has happened. What do you mean, why is that better marshalling than, you know, just doing an electronic transfer? Um, Well, because um, uh, it is the ability to help the the candidate who is receiving contributions from multiple sources remember you, the industry, et cetera, et cetera. Wouldn't you remember if someone handed you a check versus just got it in the mail? Hell yes. Sure, sure. Talbot says typically there's a person who works for the member of Congress there who's holding the checks. That person is called a fundraiser. Yep, the event is a fundraiser, and that person is called a fundraiser. Jimmy Williams picks it up with what happens next. You sit around, and you have a conversation with the member who's sitting at the head of the table or in the center of the table, and everyone goes around and says, I'm Jimmy Williams, and I'm the lobbyist for, a lobbyist for the National Association of Realtors, or whatever it is. Um, And... Uh, and then you go and you say, I, we care about uh, keeping banks out of big, bad, evil banks out of real estate, and we care about protecting flood insurance, which is the flood insurance program, which is great for coastal communities. But, you know, 
everybody does that. So the insurance guy, the lobbyist for the insurance industry, he does that. And the lobbyist for uh, the accounting industry, she does that. And by the way, the fundraiser is standing in the room. And the fundraiser has 35000 bucks in checks sitting in her pocket right now, in her pocketbook. Oh, and we're going to talk about public policy while we take the checks. Jimmy says that it's not like the check will buy a vote on a bill or even an amendment. But to get in front of the lawmaker, to make your case at all, you need that check. People we talked to in this system said everyone understands the rules. You're going to cut checks from your PAC, your political action committee, to get access to lawmakers. But they tell us the rules are rarely explicit. Although there are times, says Jimmy Williams, like when he took a couple of clients to one congressman's office. They opened up the door and the chief of staff said, can we talk to just you for one second and then we can bring in the two constituents? And I said, sure, absolutely not a problem. Walk in, they shut the door. The congressman is sitting behind his desk. He stands up. He shakes my hand and says, hey, Jimmy, it's great to see you. And I said, congressman, it's good to see you too. He said, I've put in two calls to your PAC director and I haven't received any return phone calls. Now, why am I taking this meeting? And he held up a piece of paper with my PAC director's name highlighted in yellow on it with the dates and the times that he had called her to ask her for a campaign donation, and she hadn't returned his call. And I thought to myself, this is great, because I've got two of my, two of my guys out here that are constituents of this, this congressman who are now going to come in here and they're going to make an ask of him to support a a specific piece of legislation. And what he has done is he has warned me that if I don't take care of what my PAC director isn't doing, which is contributing to his campaign, then he's not going to help my guys. Some members of Congress have a much easier time getting lobbyists and donors to call them back. Members whose positions in Congress give them more sway over powerful interests. A lot of that depends on committee assignments. Here's Jeff Flake, a Republican congressman from Arizona. I can tell you the difference between the fundraising potential um, when you're sitting on the Ways and Means Committee or sitting on the uh, Science Committee. (laughs) There's a difference. There's a big difference. The Ways and Means Committee covers the U.S. tax code. Who gets tax breaks? Who pays more? Every corporation in America concerned about the tax code, which is a lot of corporations, is suddenly concerned with your candidacy when you're on Ways and Means. The Science Committee can't compete with that. Although science isn't the worst. Here's Walt Minnick. Well, I don't know the worst committees. Um, um, <laughs> government, government reform, ethics. The leadership of both parties actually ranks each committee according to its fundraising potential. There are lists of the A, B, and C committees with fundraising targets for each one. Those numbers aren't public. Many lawmakers say these lists exist, but no one would give one to us. So we did our own list based on publicly disclosed fundraising numbers. Lee Drutman, a senior fellow at the Sunlight Foundation, crunched data for us going back to the early 90s. And the math shows... The best committee is indeed Ways and Means. Just getting on that committee earns you an estimated quarter million dollars more in donations than the average member of Congress. Number two, no big surprise here, the Financial Services Committee. It covers banks and Wall Street. It brings in $182,000 more per member than the average. Third best, 
Energy and Commerce, which has jurisdiction over the oil and natural gas industries. If you're there, you get a $142,000 boost in fundraising. And as for the worst, it's true, government reform is bad, as are education and natural resources. They all hurt your fundraising. Members on those committees bring in less than the average. But the very bottom spot belongs to the Judiciary Committee, which covers the federal courts and judicial nominations. Just being on Judiciary costs you $182,000 in donations. And then there's leadership. According to the Sunlight data, having a leadership position on any committee, even a DUD committee, will bump up your fundraising. So, for example, even the chairman of the Government Reform Committee does very well, bringing in about a half million dollars more than the average House member. And if you become a chairman of a powerhouse committee, an A committee, like Ways and Means or Energy, you pull in over a million dollars more. Like Congressman Barney Frank. He became a leader on the Financial Services Committee in 2003 and saw his fundraising skyrocket. People would come to see me and pay for the privilege of, uh, of doing that. But there's one catch to getting on a good committee or taking a leadership spot. Where much is given, much is required. Jeff Flake, the Republican from Arizona, says once you get on a good committee or become a chairman, your party's leadership expects you to raise even more money and turn it over to them so that they can spread it around to members who are less fortunate, ones in tight races who don't have such an easy time fundraising for themselves. Remember that list of the A, B, and C committees? Flake says leadership makes those targets pretty explicit. You're given dues, assessments. And uh, if you're a senior member on committees that, are, that lend themselves to fundraising and you're uh, either a ranking member or you're the chairman, then you're expected to raise a lot of money. Or? Or uh, when you come up, uh, uh, you know, every two years to either retain your position or move to another committee, uh, those things are certainly taken into account. Do they tell you this? I think that's implied. Uh, I think uh, it's pretty well understood. Lawmakers of both parties told us that if you're on a good committee, you regularly get called up in front of your party's leaders to go over your fundraising numbers. And let's say your numbers aren't that good. You know there are other congressmen out there hungry for your spot, trying to prove to the party leadership that they'd do a better job raising money if they were in your position. And you can hear this pressure in the voice of Eleanor Holmes Norton. She's the congresswoman who left that voicemail we played at the beginning of the show. This is a part we didn't play earlier. I'm simply candidly calling to ask for a contribution. The senior member of the um, committee and a, a, a subcommittee chair, we have obligations <laughs> to raise uh, funds, and I think it must have been me who hadn't, frankly, uh, done my homework to ask for a contribution earlier. So I'm trying to make up for it by asking for one now when we particularly uh, need uh, contributions, particularly those of us who have the seniority and the chairmanships and are in a position to raise the funds. And this brings us to the big question. What does the money buy? What are corporations and special interests getting in return for the billions of dollars they spend lobbying each year? There tend to be two views on this. If you're cynical, you think money buys votes, pure and simple. Washington is owned. Money drives everything. But lobbyists and politicians will sometimes tell you the opposite. Money has no effect. 
After all, they say, there's always two sides and both are giving. Exporters versus importers, bankers versus realtors, businesses versus unions. The money cancels itself out. When we asked Barney Frank about this, he said both of those positions are caricatures. Uh, People say, oh, it doesn't have any effect on me. Look, if that were the case, we would be the only human beings in the history of the world who on a regular basis took significant amounts of money from perfect strangers and made sure that it had no effect on our behavior. That's, that is not human nature. On the other hand, he says, there are things that influence a politician besides money. If the voters have a position, the votes will kick money's rear end any time. I've never met a politician, I've been in legislative bodies for 40 years now, who choosing between a significant opinion in his or her district and a number of campaign contributors doesn't go with the district. And, and uh, I have had people tell me, and we talk honestly to each other, we don't lie to each other very often. It doesn't, you don't survive if you do. As chairman of a committee, I'd be lobbying for votes. I have had members say to me, Mr. Chairman, I love you, Bonnie, you're right, but I can't do that politically because I'll get killed in my district. No one has ever said to me, I'm sorry, but I got a big contributor I can't offend. But the fact is, most legislation your district doesn't care about. The stuff that makes the news is a tiny fraction of what Congress actually does. They're deep in the weeds of tax law and business code and replacing the and in subsection B of Title I with an or, things most voters have no opinions on. The only people who do care or who even understand what that small print means are the lobbyists and the industries and interests they represent. Consider the American Jobs Creation Act of 2004. This was a piece of legislation that lots of multinational corporations spent a lot of time lobbying for because it got them a huge one-time tax break. Some of the profits, the profits they made overseas, would be taxed at just 5% instead of the normal rate of 35%, a massive windfall. This law caught the attention of a tax professor at the University of Kansas, Raquel Alexander. She thought it might help her understand a pretty difficult question she and her colleagues had been considering. We know that people lobby for a reason, but we haven't really been able to quantify what's the return on their lobbying investment. With the American Jobs Creation Act, Alexander and her colleagues finally got something that could help them add up the lobbying costs and benefits. They simply compared the amount that companies spent lobbying with the amount they saved on their taxes, came up with a figure, a figure they called the return on investment for lobbying. Now, for some perspective, money in a regular old savings account you'd be lucky to get a 1% return on your investment. On the other end of the spectrum, Bernie Madoff advertised annual returns of just over 10%. If you want to come up with a big, impressive-sounding lie, a 10% return on investment is what you say. The return on investment to lobbying, in the case of Alexander's study? 22,000%. So for every dollar, on average, that these firms spent on tax lobbying, they received $220 in tax benefits from this repatriation provision. Were you expecting it to be that big? I was not. I was not expecting it to be that big at all. I thought I needed to go back and check my math again. (laughs) (laughs) So after the fifth or sixth time checking, you were like, oh, this is the number. (laughs) After the 20th time of checking. In 2010, there was a total of $3.5 billion spent on lobbying. $3.5 billion. It's hard to imagine that every one of those dollars got a 22,000% return. There's certainly companies out there that spend a lot of money and don't get what they want. They've just lost money. And it's not to say that the things they're lobbying for are bad public policy. There are lots of people, 
President Obama included, who think a lower corporate tax rate would benefit the country. Barney Frank and lots of others told us straight up, a lot of times the lobbyist knows much more about your subject than you do as a congressman. You depend on their expertise, and so you listen to their arguments. The problem is those arguments are accompanied by a large check. The other side of the issue, you don't always hear from them. Again, Walt Minnick, the one-time congressman from Idaho. The fact that you get to explain your point of view uh, because you're a big banking uh, executive and that someone who's just a depositor in the bank doesn't have the time to come to Washington, uh, doesn't have the financial wherewithal, so you may not get that side of the view as uh, as well articulated. Uh, so you uh, you may end up voting the wrong way because you haven't fully understood both sides of the story, even if you do have integrity. Is there a time that you accepted a meeting and money with people that, in retrospect, you might you might not have? I had some meetings I was pretty uncomfortable at um, with uh, <clears throat> uh, the. Um, the 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 lender the payday loan kind of lender some of the folks in that industry were uh a little unsavory and that, and they they were they were funding your campaign they contributed to my campaign they're a big political contributor in Washington and so that's an example of um nobody there there weren't any people who were applying for payday loans that came in to see me. But the consumer side of that doesn't contribute a nickel. When he was talking about this, Walt Minnick told us, I think I was able to vote in ways I don't regret. That ambiguity, it's built into the system. And now he's on the other side of it. After losing his re-election bid in 2010, he became a lobbyist. And he still has misgivings about the power of money in politics to frame the issues and set the agenda. Money in the political system helps explain why oil companies get big subsidies even while their business is booming, why the federal government provides flood insurance for rich people to build beach houses in hurricane zones, why corn syrup that goes in soft drinks gets federal subsidies and fruits and vegetables don't. It helps explain why the Defense Department paid two different companies to make engines for the Joint Strike Fighter, why you can deduct the interest you pay on your mortgage, but not the interest you pay on your credit card. It's why we have a system where even though we passed a comprehensive health care reform bill, where it's still illegal for the federal government to negotiate drug prices. We pay uh, old people, uh, uh, young people, people needing a new cancer drug, pay eight or ten times as much in America as they do in any other country. And that is directly a function of the amount of money that the pharmaceutical industry has poured into congressional campaigns of uh, members of both parties. That's our system. If a congressman went in front of a town hall meeting and said, for 5000 bucks, I'll sit down with any one of you and have breakfast, you can tell me exactly how you'd like me to vote, he'd be booed off the stage. But that's the case for pretty much everybody in Congress. They don't even have to say it. Alex Bloomberg is a producer on our program and on the Planet Money team. Andrea Seabrook is NBR's congressional correspondent. On the internet, right now, Sunlight Foundation and Planet Money crunched numbers from over 13,000 fundraising invitations to put together an interactive map 
showing the most popular spots in D.C. for hosting a fundraiser, charts listing the best and worst congressional committees for fundraising, how many fundraisers over the years have been birthday parties, golf tournaments, and hunting trips. That and more is at Planet Money's website, npr.org money. Coming up, how everything that you just heard is now changing, changing in such a big way to give individual donors and corporations and unions way, way more leverage thanks to the United States Supreme Court. That's in a minute from Chicago Public Radio and Public Radio International when our program continues. This is American Life, America Glass. Today on our program, take the money and run for Congress. Stories about the moment that money is handed to a politician and what it buys. We've arrived at Act 2 of our program, Act 2, Pac-Man. So everything that we described in the first half of the program, the the fundraisers, the phone banks of congressmen asking for donations, all of that right now is at this very moment changing dramatically. The way that money flows into politics is changing because of the 2010 Supreme Court decision in the Citizens United case. Citizens United lifted a bunch of restrictions on political spending. It opened the door for unlimited political spending by corporations and by unions. And it gave birth to entities called super PACs. These funds can take, again, unlimited amounts directly from corporations, unions, millionaires, anybody, and spend it on politics. And because of the way the laws are written, super PAC donors can either temporarily or sometimes permanently keep their identities from becoming public, meaning that people can drop millions into any given race. They can run commercials. They can attack candidates. And voters will never know who they were. A lot of attention has been paid to what this is going to do to presidential politics, but where it is already having a big effect is Congress. Ben Calhoun tells how. Here's one pretty good example of how super PACs are affecting American politics, affecting the whole balance of money and influence. It starts in Northern California, starts in the suburban congressional district around Sacramento, and it starts with this guy who was never supposed to win. Most folks thought, you know what, Ami, you can't win this race. Um, Ami Berra is a doctor, college professor, and when he ran for Congress in 2010, his chances were pretty bleak. He was a Democrat in a midterm election where Democrats took a beating. He was a first-time candidate taking on a sitting Republican congressman named Dan Lundgren, and this was in a district that favored Republicans. Just to give you a sense of how bad it looked, at the beginning of the summer, Ami Berra took a poll. When we did that first um, poll... We saw that we were over 30 points down. It's like, oh, God, how are we going um, to overcome 30 points? 30 points. 30 points is a lot. But week by week, Barra got his feet underneath him. He shook hands, he spoke at events, gathered volunteers, asked friends and acquaintances for money. All summer he did this. July, August, September. You know, we did a second poll at the beginning of October. Um, I vividly remember when that second poll came in um, and our pollster called us together for the results. And the one thing she said was single digits, baby. Um, we went from 30 points down to a tight single digit race. And you know, there was a lot of high fiving going on and saying, you know what, we might get this. Um, and then a couple days later, we were in the, the campaign office, you know, making phone calls, fundraising. Um, and one of the um, younger staffers was on the Internet and pulled up um, the Rothenberg political report, which is you know, one of the, the big political pundits. Just quickly, when it comes to the art of judging congressional races, figuring out which ones are really competitive, which seats could change hands, all that stuff, there's pretty much two people that everybody listens to. There's one guy named Charlie Cook. The other is Stu Rothenberg. 
So this Barra staffer goes to a computer, looks at the Rothenberg report. And he comes busting out of the room and says, you know, Rothenberg moved us to a toss-up race. Um, everyone else had us lean Republican, and Stu Rothenberg moved us to a toss-up. Um, when Rothenberg moved us to toss-up, that was external validation that says, okay, game on. We, we've got momentum on our side. We're moving. The needle's moving in our direction. We can do this. Soon, Time Magazine and the New York Times were reporting on how competitive the race was. The Times actually ran a piece calling the incumbent, Dan Lundgren, endangered. All of a sudden, more and more people were looking at Barra like he was a possible winner. And people started treating him like one. Donations took off. Everything sort of continued to fall into place until one very specific day. It was probably um, you know, Wednesday or Thursday right before... Um yeah, you know, at the end of the third week. Um, this is the this is the third week in October. This is the third week in October. So just you know, as, as we're getting up to two weeks out out of election day, and you know, one of our team members says, you know what, American Crossroads has made a media buy in, in our media market. American Crossroads is a super PAC put together by some of the country's leading conservative operatives and donors, most notably Carl Rove. In the super PAC world, Crossroads is massive. Money-wise, they raise a ton, $27 million last year and this year. Their directors are prominent conservative leaders, and their donors, who give millions of dollars, are big ones. For example, Bob Perry, the main donor behind the Swift Boat stuff. Perry's given Crossroads more than $8 million. But anyway, back to Barra, who, after weeks of picking up steam, has just found out that Crossroads is about to spend money in Sacramento. And it was a lot of money, $682,000. When Bear heard about this, he hoped that at least some of that money was going to be spent going after this other Democrat, one congressional district over. Yeah, I, I hate to wish ill on another um, person who's running for Congress, but it's like, well, I hope it's going in his direction. Um, so, you know, we did some digging around. You know, folks um, went to the television stations to see what the, um, what the buy was like. And they, you know, came back a little while later and say, it's all going against you, Ami. It's all a negative Barra buy. Um, so, you know, it's like you stop there for a second, and, you know, the pit of your stomach falls out. Not only does Ami Barra support Obamacare, he says it doesn't go far enough. Obamacare's $525 billion in job-killing taxes isn't far enough. This is the commercial that Rove and American Crossroads ran against Barra. Just for the record, Barra thought Obama's Health Care Affordability Act, a.k.a. Obamacare, he thought it was flawed, needed to be fixed. He did not say what the commercial is saying. And he told this to anybody that would listen. But it was hard to counter Crossroads' ad buy, which was in heavy rotation. When those commercials were running, what is your most prominent memory of either seeing it at home or talking about it with a friend or your wife, is there a conversation or something that sticks out in your mind? Probably my daughter sitting and saying, Dad, you're on television again. Dad, you're on television again. Because the commercial was running so often. I mean, and it, I know that, I mean, every, every TV market is different. What does $682,000 get you in a week in Sacramento? Like, how heavy was it? Yeah, a lot of commercials. Josh, you may know. This is Bear's campaign manager, Josh Wolf. Yeah, it was about 
1,600 points, which means that I guess the average viewer will see that commercial about 16 times, which is a lot. The average viewer? So the, so, the average, so the average person watching television during that week would have seen that ad 16 times. In just one week. So there's a reason why my daughter was saying, hey, Dad, you're on television again. Hey, there's that commercial again. Day by day, as these ads continued to run, the Barra campaign struggled to respond. Barra sent out emails, sent out press releases, talked to reporters. But what Barra really needed was money. According to him, the campaign had budgeted money for a late rainy day, but it wasn't enough to match 682000 Eventually, the situation got so dire that Bear tried to bail out the campaign with a $400,000 loan. And what were your most recent uh, polls showing before those, those ads hit? You know, we were probably um, down by 8%. Um, but you actually saw a, a ch- uh, you saw the numbers move oh, after absolutely. those commercials. Yeah, I mean, it, it clearly had impact and drove us backwards. We went from a single-digit race um, to 14 points down. Now, that's a lot to make up in a single week. Of course, it's impossible to know if without the Crossroads ads, Barra could have closed that eight-point gap and won the race. Eight points is a lot of ground to make up in two weeks. What is possible to know, though, is that Barra could not compete with $682,000 in TV commercials. I mean, just to put that number in context, during the entire campaign, the Republican incumbent Dan Lundgren raised and spent about $1.9 million. That means American Crossroads, when it spent about $700,000, it single-handedly increased spending on Lundgren's side by more than 30% in a single day. I mean, it's... It's like playing a chess game. You lay out your strategy and you're making your moves and so forth. Um, you've taken your opponent's queen, and all of a sudden he reaches into his pocket and pulls out another queen and drops it on the table. I did call Dan Lundgren to get his side of all this. As it happens, Lundgren's actually the chair of the House Administration Committee, which oversees the enforcement of elections law. So if Bear felt like this whole thing had been unfair, I just wondered what it looked like to Lundgren who'd benefited from that big ad buy. I talked to his campaign, talked to his office in D.C. After contacting them more than half a dozen times, Lundgren never explicitly said he didn't want to talk about any of this. His staff just never responded to any of my requests. You probably heard little about this, because it didn't really get covered. But in 2010, on both sides of the aisle, super PACs were doing this all across the country swooping into congressional races, spending hundreds of thousands, sometimes millions of dollars, affecting who is representing us in Washington. Again, well, lots of us weren't even paying attention. This year, we've seen a lot of headlines about this person and that person putting millions of dollars into the presidential race. But super PACs can throw their weight around more in smaller races, like house races. There, every dollar is more influential. Put $5 million into a presidential campaign, no matter how flashy that is, you're still ultimately just a drop in the bucket. Put half a million dollars into the right house race. You can change the fate of an entire campaign. Every potentially vulnerable member of Congress is worried about a late-breaking, enormously expensive attack campaign used against them. This is Norm Ornstein. 
He works at the conservative think tank, the American Enterprise Institute. Ornstein's been living in the world of congressional politics for decades as a journalist, an academic, a columnist. He says these big chunks of super PAC money that seem to be roaming around have everybody nervous. They've taken the pressure on candidates to raise money, and they've turned it up even higher. Uh, imagine if you've got enough money to take on an opponent, even raise some money for your party, uh, and two weeks before the election, somebody, and you may not even know who it is, and certainly the voters aren't going to know who it is, spends $10 million in a blanket television campaign defining you as a scoundrel, an alien, a felon, and a louse. You can't raise the money uh, at that date to do anything about it. You don't have time. So what's happening now is more and more members of Congress are raising a protective war chest just in case. They like a rainy day fund. You know, you could call it a rainy day fund. You could call it uh, an arsenal, a stockpile of nuclear weapons just in case uh, there's a sneak attack. If you do the long division of what's happening, it's not hard to see where it's headed, that we're drifting towards a new version of Congress. One where there are people in the House and in the Senate who have had their political existences made or broken by a single entity, one single donor. Norm Ornstein says money, in these kinds of amounts, in some cases people don't even have to spend it and it can affect what happens in Washington. I've had this tale told to me by a number of lawmakers. You're sitting in your office and a lobbyist comes in and says, uh, you know, uh, I'm working with Americans for a better America, and I can't tell you who's funding them, uh, but I can tell you they really, really want this amendment in the bill. And who knows what they'll do? They've got more money than God uh, if somebody disappoints them. Uh, the implication becomes clear. Cross them, and you're going to get the $20 million alien predator attack on you in your campaign. And when they leave the office, the lawmakers sitting there thinking, it's just one amendment. I mean, one little thing. And so what's going to happen here is, even without spending the money, in a lot of instances, there are going to be changes in laws that will benefit special interests because of the threat of uh, millions of dollars in undisclosed contributions to bludgeon somebody who thwarts them. When you said that, you said that these are conversations that you've already heard of happening at this point? Yeah, I, I mean, I've had more than one uh, member of Congress, House and Senate, tell me about having conversations like this. In this environment, Democrat Ami Berra and Republican Dan Lundgren are going for round two. In some ways, Berra's got the wind at his back. California remap Lundgren's district made it more democratic. Barra's also out fundraised Lundgren. But at this house party event I went to with Barra, he took questions from a crowd for about half an hour, and super PAC spending, it came up three times. What everybody seemed to agree on was that this big infusion of outside money, they were all pretty much counting on it happening again. They talked about it as the new reality. Because the role of super PACs is only getting bigger. Republicans and Democrats are both amassing money, Everyone's planning to do more of this. Last time, Carl Rove's Crossroads Group spent $37 million on about 40 different races. This time, including all the races, presidential, House, Senate, 
This time, it's been reported that Crossroads plans to raise and spend more than $300 million. And they're just one of many. Ben Calhoun is one of the producers of our show. If you've got the money, I got the time. We'll go honky-tonking and we'll have a time. We'll make all the night spots, do the town up fine. If you've got the money, honey, I got the time. Act three, the OGs. In the wake of Citizens United, it seems like forever ago, but it was only a decade ago, in 2002, that Congress voted to reform how money works in politics when it passed BICRA, the Bipartisan Campaign Reform Act, better known as McCain-Feingold, after the Republican and Democratic senators who sponsored the legislation, John McCain and Russ Feingold. John, how are you? Well, I miss you. Uh, you're not missing a thing, but I miss you. <laughs> For this last act, we wanted to talk with the two senators who have spent so much of their political lives fighting to lessen the impact of money in the political system. John McCain, of course, was the 2008 Republican nominee for president. He's still in the Senate representing Arizona. Russ Feingold was swept out of office in the 2010 election. He'd represented Wisconsin there since 1993. He's now teaching at Stanford University. The two men spoke with Alex, Andrea, and Ben. And listening to this interview, one of the things that stands out most is well, how angry they sound when they're talking about the Citizens United decision. For example, McCain uh, talking about the part of the Supreme Court ruling that says that candidates are not supposed to coordinate with the super PACs that support them. The joke that they are not coordinating with the campaigns. It's beyond ridiculous. People who are part of their campaigns go over to run the PAC, but they're not... They're not coordinating anything. No, no, don't get me wrong. Gambling is not taking place in this establishment. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's beyond uh, belief. What Senator McCain is referring to is the fact that the candidate's own staffers are often the ones who leave to run these super PACs. A pro-Obama super PAC called Priorities USA is run by President Obama's former deputy press secretary, Carl Forty, who's political director of American Crossroads and senior strategist for a pro-Mitt Romney super PAC called Restore Our Future, used to be Mitt Romney's political director. Well, pick up our interview uh, here where the two senators are talking about what it was like the day they went over to observe the Supreme Court hearing arguments during the Citizens United case. First, I was outraged. Uh, the day that Russ and I went over and observed uh, uh, the, the, the arguments the questions that were asked, the naivete of the questions that were asked, and the arrogance of uh, of some of the questioners was just stunning, particularly Scalia with his sarcasm. Well, why shouldn't these people be able to to be able to engage in this process? Why do you want to restrict them from their rights of free speech? And the questions they asked showed they had that not the slightest clue as to what a political campaign is all about and the role of money that it plays in political campaigns. And I remember when Russ and I walked out of there, I said, Russ, I said, we're going to lose. And, and it's because they are clueless. Remember that day we were over there, Russ? Absolutely, John. I couldn't agree with you more. It, it clearly was one of the worst decisions ever of the Supreme Court. And the trouble with this issue, and I think John would agree with this, is people have gotten so down about it, they think it's always been this way. Well, it's never been this way since 1907. 
It's never been the case that when you buy toothpaste or detergent or a gallon of gas, that the next day that money can be used on a candidate that you don't believe in. That's brand new. That's never happened since the Tillman Act and the Taft-Hartley Act. And so people have to realize this is a whole new deal. It's not business as usual. The, the two of you, given the, the, the time and political capital that you put into, into passing the reform that you did... We've still got you, the scars to... <laughs> and given that, I mean, when you look at the current situation, I, I wonder if you feel a little bit like Sisyphus with the rock at the bottom. I feel a, a great sense of disappointment and sorrow because we did see the corruption that existed before. And now if you, you could make an argument that we've gone back further even than we had been before, before there were at least some restrictions, particularly on corporations and unions, but now it's just uh, it's inevitable as the, as, the, as the sun will come up tomorrow. There will be scandals. I don't know exactly what it's going to be, I ha- but I guarantee you there's too much money washing around the political arena today. You know, I've had conversations with Democratic givers out here in the Bay Area, and I'll tell you, you wouldn't believe the requests they're getting. It, the opening ante is a million dollars. You know, it's not, gee, it'd be nice if you give a million. That's sort of the baseline. <laughs> this is unprecedented. And in fact, one thing that John and I experienced was that sometimes the corporations that didn't like this system would come to us and say, you know, you guys, it's not legalized bribery. It's legalized extortion because it's not like the, the company CEO calls up and say, gee, I'd love to give you some money. It's usually the other way around. The politician or their agent who's got the super PAC, they're the ones that are calling up and asking for the money. So a lot of businesses, I think, are going to help us rebel against this and say, you know, we don't want to be a part of this mess. You know, Andrew and I and and Ben and I have been talking to lots and lots of people who are involved in, you know, politicians, lobbyists, talking to them about the process of fundraising. Most of the people we talk to hate it. They hate making those phone calls. They hate going into that room. They hate going to the fundraisers morning, noon, and night. They hate sucking up to people to give them money to get elected. Why don't more people try to change it? Yeah, after this program, I am going to a fundraiser <laughs> for, <laughs> let me say, it's for uh, a guy whose name is Kirk Adams, who is running for the U.S. House of Representatives. And uh, I can assure you, I would much prefer to be watching the first round <laughs> of March Madness. <laughs> so, so you, if I may illustrate your point, <laughs> uh, it, 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 it's, the, it's the system and it's the, it, it, the water in which we swim. And uh, as you say, we, I know of no one who likes it, but it is the... It is the system. I happen to. But why don't more think- people join you in fighting it? That's what I don't understand. Well, they, they did. We managed to get uh, <laughs> against all odds. Uh, we did get people. Uh, it took a lot of hard work. Now the problem is, of course, is people are reticent to do that because they got elected under the system. So it's just fear of change. Sure. When you win a certain way, it's your people say to you, "Hey, this is how we do it, and this is this is how we won." We'd better not mess with success. I think that's, a, that's one of the problems in this presidential race, where not only the Republicans, but even my candidate, President Obama, has opened the door to you know, this unlimited money through some of his people. I, you know, it's, 
it's hard to get people to change something after they win that way, and that's one of my worries about it. Former Wisconsin Senator Russ Feingold and his 2002 legislative partner, Arizona Senator John McCain, with Andrea Seabrook, Alex Bloomberg, and Ben Calhoun. Senator Feingold is the author of the new book, While America Sleeps. Well, our program is produced today by Ben Calhoun and Alex Bloomberg with Sarah Koenig, Jonathan Menhevar, Lisa Pollock, Brian Reed, Robin Semyon, Alyssa Ship, and Nancy Updike. Our senior producers, Julie Snyder, Seth Lind is our production manager, Emily Condon's our office manager, production help from Matt Kilty, music help from Damian Gray from Rob Geddes. Special thanks today to Uri Berliner and to our other colleagues at NPR News who helped make today's show happen, to Bill Allison, Ellen Miller, Steve Driehaus, Neil Voles, Jonathan Whitman, Jonathan Collegio, Julia Queen at the FEC, OpenSecrets.org, and the many, many people who spoke to us on background in the reporting of the show. Our website, ThisAmericanLife.org. This American Life is distributed by Public Radio International. WB Easy Management Oversight for our program by our boss, Ms. Tori Malatia, who is very, very concerned about the power of the atheist lobby in Congress. And who knows what they'll do? They've got more money than God. I'm Ira Glass, back next week with more stories of This American Life. Public Radio International.